0: Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longen with the College of Arts and Sciences. We're still working remotely for the health and safety of ourselves, our families, and everyone else. As we do so, we're dealing with the same sense of uncertainty and general fear that you are. So we thought it would be a good time for an episode about mental health in this situation. We're joined by Thad Leffingwell, a clinical health psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology. We discuss his tips for coping, what the human mind is good at and how that leads to some of our biggest problems, and how teaching online is going for him. And due to technical difficulties, our producer, Donovan Potts, even jumps in to ask a question while I frantically try to rejoin the virtual meeting. So you've written some tips for helping people cope with these challenges we're all dealing with here related to the coronavirus. Um, Would you like to talk through what these tips are and why you think these are helpful?
1: Sure. So I think uh, this crisis we're in right now is a pretty unique crisis and one that um, is a psychological challenge as much as it is a health challenge, a financial challenge, an economic challenge. There's a lot of psychological challenges here. I think the crisis itself is almost a perfect storm to create anxiety and stress in people. Uh, You've got a, a largely invisible enemy in the absence of testing. Um, you've got uh, uncertain uh, outcomes, you've got uncertainty about whether you yourself may uh, be directly affected by this, as well as, of course, for those you love and care about. Um, If people um, do come down with the virus, you you don't know the outcome seems very uncertain. We hear reports all the way from very mild to, uh, of course, people dying from the disease. Um, And I think those kind of circumstances just create a storm of uncertainty for us. That's a challenge for us to cope with. And so I appreciated the chance to share some uh, tips from psychology that I would consider uh, kind of mental health hygiene tips. Um, You know, we're focusing a lot on our uh, physical hygiene as far as uh, physical distance and washing our hands and those sorts of things. And really these tips are about mental health hygiene. Uh, try to kind of keep ourselves on a uh, as even a keel as possible and uh, cope with the stress that looks like it's going to be with us for uh, some time. And we will have these tips linked in the uh, description of this
0: podcast. We'll make it real easy for people to get to them. Now there are six of them here. Did you
1: put these in a specific order? Was
0: it, are these
1: ranked from one to six? No, I think these were meant to be just more or less kind of a menu of options for people to choose from. Uh, Some are probably going to be more effective for some than others. Uh, We probably could have written a list of 20 if we'd come up with. I came up with the ones that I thought were uh, pretty practical, um, could probably apply to most people. And... um, you know, based on our uh, research literature, are likely to be effective at uh, helping people cope with the, uh, the stress of the situation. Start at the top here. The, the first one is structure your day as much as possible. Sure. I mean, one of the things that we know uh, from a lot of research on depression is that when people's routines get disrupted, um, it tends to affect people's mood in a negative way. And so, to the extent that you can maintain routines in your day as much as possible. As tempting as it is to stay in pajamas all day and uh, watch Netflix, it's probably better for your overall mental health to add some structure to your day, even to write that schedule out on a whiteboard or a sheet of paper um, and stick to those uh, schedules. Uh, We know that that does tend to help people's uh, mood uh, quite a bit when coping with depression and it's likely to help people now.
0: Number two, you have
1: take care of your body and mind. Yeah, I think one of the other important things, and people might not think about this as mental health hygiene, but uh, get some activity, uh, move. Uh, even if all you can do is stand some, we know that standing is a kind of physical activity that has positive effects. But if you have the ability to uh, to move, uh, of course, in a, a safe way with physical social distancing, um, if you can get outside and walk around the block, um, those sorts of things make a big difference. And Um, To the extent that you take care of your body, you are helping your mental health as well. So you put these two together and basically you're saying like, don't hibernate, (laughs) right? Don't just barricade yourself in the house, lay in bed. Well, and I think some of the messaging we get about uh, just the terms we use of self-isolation and whatnot uh, sort of implies uh, hibernation, right? Just pull the covers over your head and stay put. And uh, that's not really what's gonna be in our best interest. Certainly, we wanna limit those physical contacts, but we need to get out of bed and move. Number three is limit news and social media intake. Boy, that's a big one. I'm talking to myself there when I wrote that, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, this is, uh, of course, the current crisis is all the news, it's all the social media. um, And if you spend a lot of time there, it just ramps up anxiety and stress. Uh, and you're probably not gaining much new information. And so I recommend uh, just a moderate diet of news intake. It certainly is responsible to be aware of what's going on and learn the latest situation. Uh, but once you've sort of got to a daily dose of that, uh, turn that stuff off, turn away from it, and uh, and do other things. Because if you spend too much time on that, Um, it's going to really affect you.
0: It sounds like you're talking about a vicious cycle. You just dwell on it and dwell on it and dwell on it.
1: Oh, that's right. Uh, In psychology, we talk about that as rumination, and we know that's not good for mental health either. And the thing that I'm noticing in my own media intake is that uh, you know, we certainly know that this virus is potentially deadly, and there are, at this point, thousands of people have died and many thousands more uh, may die. But the truth is that thousands die every day from various diseases and illnesses, but we don't hear those chronicled quite so much on our news and in our social media, and so we're able to put them in a bit of a context. It seems like now, no matter where you go, you're, you're coming across uh, um, endless stories of very specific people's experience with the disease. And while I think it's good and responsible to have some awareness of that, I think if you're take too much of a diet of that throughout your day, you're gonna lose a little bit of perspective on where we're actually at right now. And that, I think, leads right into number four is stay in the present. Well, that's right. I think another part of this uh, crisis that is uh, challenging is that it it tempts our minds to wander into a future that is uh, fairly fearsome uh, with this situation. And uh, we, the more we do that, the more uh, I know for myself, I find myself, if, if I find my anxiety and stress growing, it's usually because in the last half hour, my mind has been drifting into unknown futures and possible catastrophic outcomes. And it, uh, it's often beneficial to uh, take a break and realize that that's not real. That's an imagined uh, future and to stay in the present right now and deal with what's going on right now in front of you. And that's stressful enough. That's uh, uh, plenty to deal with. Um, So being in the present is really helpful. Uh, Mindful meditation is a great strategy for doing this. There are wonderful apps and YouTube videos out there for practicing that. I would encourage folks, if they've never tried mindful meditation, uh, now's a great time to try because it's basically a a disciplined practice of trying to focus on the current moment. That's all mindful meditation is about. And uh, uh, people will get a lot of relief from that, I think, if they try it.
0: So number five is be patient. And I'm gonna gonna cheat a little bit here and grab a little bit of the next, uh, your description of it where it says, remind yourself that this is temporary. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's really important.
1: Well, it sure is. Uh, I think one of the other challenges we 're facing is the uncertain endpoint of this. Nobody knows when or how this will end, uh, but one thing I think everybody's sure of is there will be an endpoint. Things will return uh, to normal at some point, whether that's weeks or months away. We just don't know and can't know right now, and so we just have to try and be patient and wait for that this current moment as stressful as it as it is. Is simply not going to last forever. And I think if we remind ourselves about that, that makes it uh, easier to cope with as well. And then the last one
0: is be grateful, which I think is a really hard thing right now.
1: Well, we know from a field of positive psychology that practicing gratitude is one of the very best things we can do from a mental hygiene standpoint. Um, And we've known uh, timeless, of course, counting your blessings is a good thing to do. And uh, so to the extent that you can find ways to um, Uh, Find things to be grateful for in your day-to-day life, the privileges you may have, the opportunities you may have, uh, the resources that may be available to you. Um, I think, uh, you know, counting our blessings and practicing gratitude is a really smart strategy as well. And I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but um, you wrote these last
0: week, uh, well, about a week ago since you and I are talking. Are there any more you've thought
1: of since then that you wish you had included? So I've come across, of course, lots of similar kinds of articles on uh, the social media that I follow, lots of psychologists and whatnot. Um, I saw a really good article yesterday on just trying to limit what we call catastrophizing, which is kind of related to the point I made earlier of uh, putting too much stock in that uh, imagined fearsome future that might be out there for us. Um, that's what we call catastrophizing if we, if we put too much stock and too much trust in that kind of stuff. And the tricky part is we need to do some of that. And we need everybody in the public to have some sense of concern about the future in order to act appropriately in the present. But we don't need to tip that over into um, knowing for certain what that future is. Um, I think there's a lot of hope and optimism. And I've seen some recent stories that that the social distancing and the sacrifices so many of us are making – are having some impact on flattening that curve and that that uh, feared worst case scenario outcome uh, may be avoided if we continue making some of the same sacrifices that we're making. Um, And I think that makes it easier as well. And so uh, hope is a bit of an antidote to catastrophizing. Catastrophizing assumes uh, the worst is sure to happen. Hope is more, uh, we can perhaps avoid that if we do certain things today.
0: Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, the psychology of uh, what we're seeing right now. Um, People are falling into a bunch of the traps you were just talking about. Um, I I wondered, first of all, if you had a thought, because I've read a few things about this, people panicking and buying up all the toilet paper, which makes no logical sense. As a psychologist, do you have any thoughts
1: on uh, sort of what people are doing, panicking essentially? As humans in our psychology, we have a lot of vulnerabilities that this current situation is preying upon. You know, we're not uh, very good about assessing a risk or our own risk, and that's part of what's happening in the situation. Um, we we tend to be uh, react to things like scarcity. So when something appears to be unavailable, that makes us want it worse. And uh, so I think that's contributed to some of the irrational uh, hoarding of some things like toilet paper that some people have. Uh, talked about that, uh, uh, you know, the reason people want toilet paper is not because they need toilet paper, but because they fear that it will be unavailable um, in some future when they might need it. And so they go out and get it. And that's just part of our human nature, that uh, when we experience or observe or believe scarcity to be present, uh, we respond to it. And so I think uh, there are just some aspects of our our humanness Um, And of course, one of the fundamental aspects of our humanness is we are not rational beings. So (laughs) uh, every time people wonder why aren't people acting rationally, uh, you know, my response is we never do. It's just not Mm. sort of how we're built. Um, And uh, there's uh, endless psychological research we could point to uh, for that and the decisions we make every day. Um, And I think those are just uh, coming into play in this situation.
0: I'm sure you're not saying everyone is irrational at all times, but are you saying more than the average person would think, we just don't act rationally.
1: Yes, I would agree with that, and I think that's a a good way to put it. Um, You know, we we often do work in rational and predictable ways, um, but we often don't, and uh, not just other people, but every single one of us. One of the examples I used all the time before the current crisis was, um, if you just look at our health behaviors, uh, all of us know that there are certain things we should do more, whether it be move more, drink more water, eat more vegetables, um, we know we should, if we were walking computers, uh, we would program our bodies to do those things differently. Um, but we're not rational in that way. Um, the uh, consumption's a good example. Uh, uh, we all know we should eat more fruits and vegetables. I certainly should. Um, we don't, uh, why? Because, uh, food to me is entertainment, uh, not just, uh, nutrients for the body. If it were just rational nutrients for the body, um, we'd all be on, uh, probably, uh, Um, a meatless or low meat diet, but uh, that's just not um, uh, the way we make choices. And I am guessing that stressors,
0: um, like everything happening in the world right now, increase how much we act irrationally. Is that right?
1: Oh, for sure. I think the more people are under stress, the more they um, resort to uh, less rational, more instinctive kinds of responses that are more emotionally driven um, and less uh, thought driven. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of fear and uncertainty right now. Uh, are there pros and cons to that? Uh, sure. So I think um, you know, fear and uncertainty are a little bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, on the one hand. We need some of that, and I think some of the messaging from uh, the government and the media about this, um, uh, to some extent, it sometimes gets criticized as fear-mongering or whatnot. I think that might be a bit unfair. Um, We do need to have some knowledge of the actual situation that we're facing and what the possible outcomes might be, and that does, of course, generate some fear and uncertainty in us. And that fear and uncertainty, to a certain point, can be motivating. That can motivate us to do the right thing, to make the necessary sacrifices. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the things that unfortunately happens, from kind of a public health messaging perspective, is in order to get the attention of most of the public, we do often have to ramp up those messages to raise that fear and uncertainty to the, to a satisfactory level with enough people to make a difference. The unfortunate thing is for those people who were convinced with the more mild messages, (laughs) uh, they get kind of really worked up into fear and anxiety as we ramp up uh, the messages. And I think that kind of thing can be uh, counterproductive. And so I think what you see from a messaging standpoint to the public is trying to uh, sort of thread that needle of generating a sufficient level of uh, fear and uncertainty uh, without tipping it over into uh, panic of the public. And you are, uh, along with being a psychologist, you're also a researcher,
0: a, a scholar. Obviously, you wouldn't have made this situation happen. But from a researching standpoint, are we going to see a lot come out of this um, A new understanding of people based on how they are reacting to what's going on right now or a better understanding?
1: Oh, I'm sure we will. I think one of the things that's really unique about this situation is the scale of the situation. Uh, We've certainly seen emergencies and crises happen um, uh, somewhat more locally, even in this country with areas hit by hurricanes or whatnot. We've seen similar levels of uh, disruption and economic uh, upset and whatnot. But the scope of this is really something else. And I think that's where we're going to see some interesting Um, uh, things to learn about how do we really um, uh, cope with these situations on a scale um, that's really uh, nationwide and of course worldwide. And as a psychologist I think most of us would expect you to have um, a little
0: better understanding of people than the average person does but you're talking about um, people not being rational do you feel like you are able to predict how people are gonna react more, or you have a better understanding of it, nobody's gonna be able to predict it?
1: Um, Well, that's a really interesting (laughs) question. Um, I think that uh, one of the things I would say as a psychologist is that there's certainly some things that we will predict wrong. Um, I think that we may be underestimating um, how many uh, positives ultimately will come out of this uh, situation. Uh, Of course, there will be uh, many negatives and the prediction of uh, folks lost, but there will be uh, many positives for our society, for our communities, for individuals going forward. Uh, I think a lot of us are gaining a richer appreciation for how much we value one another, how much we value our communities and uh, the opportunity to go to work and be at work together, the opportunity to play together and uh, worship together. Um, and I think um, that that uh, appreciation will probably lead to some really positive things uh, going forward. And so I, I think at this point, I would say that uh, there's there'll probably be some things that will be hard to predict. But I think there will be more positive than people are guessing uh, when this is all over as well. And along those lines, I'm going to
0: steal the uh, Mr. Rogers story that I know he told a bunch of times about when he was a kid. He would see bad things happen and his mom would say, Whenever you see bad things, look at all the people helping. There's always way more people helping than there are causing bad things. And I know uh, right now for for myself, like I'm just kind of a ball of emotions right now. And I keep seeing these stories about people, um, you know, shopping for the elderly and applauding, uh, you know, standing on their balconies and applauding the healthcare workers as they go by and things like that. And it brings me to tears, which uh, I cry some anyway, but not like that. So for me, it has in a lot of ways, it has renewed my faith in humanity because there are so many good people out there. And sometimes it takes a situation like this for you to be reminded of that.
1: Well, right. And I think another big thing we're uh, really appreciating is uh, so many people who do jobs that go unnoticed that now we recognize how actually essential they are, not just in a sense of labeling them as essential, but they're actually essential to our ability to function and survive Mm -hmm. and uh, do things, and um, I think an appreciation for uh, healthcare workers, delivery drivers, restaurant uh, workers—you um, know, all those sort of folks who are uh, right now uh, putting themselves at risk or to serve the rest of us—I think that's going to be a very positive thing as well. Because uh, no doubt, we we mostly took for granted uh, those folks uh, before this situation, and we really shouldn't, and we shouldn't going forward. So we've been in
0: this situation broadly here in Oklahoma for about two weeks now. It sounds like it could go on at least another month or so, maybe longer. Do you have any thoughts on uh, will the anxiety, the fear, the panic, will that get worse over the next month or do you think people sort of get used to this?
1: I think there will be some degree of normalization and uh, people just adapting to a new normal. I think uh, you see that happen in uh, places where combat breaks out and whatnot, that people do ultimately. Um, adapt to the new situation and reach a different kind of baseline. So um, I, th- I think there will be some of that going on. I think it's unlikely that uh, fear and panic will continue to escalate uh, beyond where it's been for most folks over the last few weeks. I guess one of the things that uh, I'm uh, pretty concerned about is sort of the psychological after effects as this thing uh, goes on. Uh, Two things in particular I worry about are uh, the prevalence of substance use disorders as people misuse substances perhaps to cope with this situation. And we've got Many, many folks, millions of folks who are in recovery and um, are at risk of perhaps um, returning to use as a coping mechanism. And so that I think is a big concern of mine. I do have uh, some concern, and this is really just a guess on my part, that we may need to be prepared for sort of helping people reprogram a little bit who are developing uh, kind of anxiety disorders around germs and infection uh, that to some extent are adaptive right now. Uh, But if they persist after the current crisis, would become maladaptive. And we know that anxiety disorders are mostly learned, and they're learned because as people experience anxiety and they engage in avoidance behaviors, like staying home, and that reduces the anxiety, that reinforces the behavior of avoidance. And I worry that we, we basically have kind of a nationwide trial right now of uh, training people to develop anxiety disorders, particularly around being in public or contamination fears or whatnot. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if that does manifest and dramatically increased um, uh, rates of those sorts of things. And we need some sort of a, uh, a nationwide response to help uh, treat that or kind of uh, return people to their uh, pre-pandemic status, I guess, related to that. Because uh, to some extent, where we probably do want people to in, have an enduring sense of uh, hygiene and public health and how to make sure that we stay healthy all the time, that'd be a good thing. Uh, but I'm afraid we may have some people who are going to, after this is over, who are going to really find it hard to leave the home mm-hmm. and uh, will tip over into more of a mental health uh, crisis uh, that may need some help with that. So those are two issues that I'm uh, kind of concerned about. I've I, I don't really have strong uh, predictions, um, but I do think those are other kind of public health consequences that could come down the line.
0: I'm glad you said both of those. Um, I have a brother who works for a sober living organization, and uh, I was talking to him the other day, and he mentioned, he said, you know, uh, substance abuse disorders don't go away at times like this. I'm essential because they actually get worse at times like this, which makes sense. Right, that's Um, right. So I'm glad you hit on that. And I know that that is an area of study for you. Addictive behavior, is that thats right? right? Mm -hmm. I know some people, I have uh, some grandparents and know some other people who survived the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly have seen, uh, I would say, a prevalence of things like hoarding behavior uh, in those people having lived through the Great Depression. And so I hadn't made that connection, but that makes sense they live through that and suddenly they feel like they got to keep everything we're living through this and especially say for our ch- well my children who are you know 13 and 9 and children younger than that this is what they grow up with
1: mm-hmm.
0: this is what they need to be prepared for in their mm-hmm. minds
1: that's right and that totally makes sense about uh, generations that may have seen experience things like the depression is that um that's what we call a diathesis stress situation. So the diathesis is the risk factor, people who sort of have experienced uh, real scarcity before, um and that kind of lies dormant until a situation comes along that activates that memory and that kind of way of acting, and they can go right back into that kind of survival mechanism um because that was sort of an overlearned uh experience in their past, uh, for sure.
0: You just talked about um addictive behavior. I know that is a, a- an area of research for you. That is fascinating to me. Um, I say all the time, and I'm happy to say publicly on a podcast, I come from a family of addicts, so I've seen what that's like. I, I know it's not rational, as you were saying earlier, but I'm curious, your thoughts on that, just what is that in humans that we're willing to pursue something that ends up hurting us rather than other things that would be more beneficial?
1: Well, boy, that's a whole podcast in itself to go through all of that. But uh, there certainly are some uh, biological causes for that. We know that uh, substances of addiction do have a sort of special entree into the reinforcement mechanisms of our brain, unlike any other behavior we can engage in that can hook us on those behaviors. Uh, there's also really popular theories right now about addiction as really um, a replacement for social connection and what is really the deficit for folks is uh, those genuine social connections that may replace that and uh, that's why i think the current situation is a significant risk of course with the uh, social distancing uh, challenging those social connections and social support and uh, in the absence of that what may fill that for some folks is uh, abuse of substances there's, there's all kinds of biopsychosocial causes of addictions um, that all can come into play in this situation, but um, addictions have been somewhat baffling to us for um, all of human is- existence and certainly in our science for 150 years, but uh, we're learning more all the time. Addiction, of course, is more than just substances.
0: It's behaviors. I'm, I'm not sure what else we, we would characterize, but I think if you don't have a connection to it, you think of it as well, that's people using drugs or, or alcohol, but there's sex abuse, there's, there's overeating, like essentially you can become addicted to virtually anything, right?
1: Right, there's so-called process or behavioral addictions, things like shopping, uh, gaming, pornography, uh, those sorts of things. And we do think that those sorts of things follow similar pathways and mechanisms um, uh, as with the substance addictions the brain is basically doing the same thing,
0: uh, as far as we can tell.
1: Right, the, the brain is adapting to a reliable sense of powerful reinforcement in such a way that uh, then orients the brain to uh, that as a primary and ultimately a sole source of reinforcement. Uh, one of the things we know that takes place with people who develop addictions is that not only are they oriented toward the substance or the process itself, but they're oriented away from things that once used to be rewarding and pleasurable. And to some extent that's understandable as a brain adaptation. Um, And we often use the analogy of uh, if you stand too close to the speaker at a rock concert, when you leave that rock concert, normal voices are hard to hear. They sound muted, right? Um, And that is your hearing system has adapted to an overwhelming uh, stimulus. And that's kind of what we think happens in addictions. Is that the brain is adapting to an overwhelming reinforcing stimulus in such a way that other things that would be normally reinforcing like uh, social connections um, uh, or work or other sorts of things simply become less rewarding. They become muted. And over time, um, uh, the substance or the process can become your your only source of reinforcement.
0: It sure sounds like we're talking about that. We're talking about um, reactions to this uh, coronavirus situation it sure sounds like so many of our problems as humans are our brain doing something good and then just taking it too far
1: oh, right right uh, well you're about to convince me we need a psychology podcast as uh, <laughs> about, uh, these things but uh, yeah i mean just basically i would say uh, i've been studying psychology for 30 years now um the basics are that our, our brain does amazing positive things And we are also wired in some really unfortunate ways that get in the way of us being more healthy, more successful, uh, more connected uh, over time. So um, uh, that's just where we are. You
0: know, one of the other transitions we've had to make uh, with what's going on with the virus is moving to online education. And uh, what's been your experience uh, so far in uh, moving all of your courses from face-to-face to online?
1: So in addition to being a faculty member, I'm also head of the Department of Psychology, and we have uh, well over 100 courses a semester offered. And uh, it's it's been quite a task having to move uh, kind of the whole of that to online. Um, Overall, I've been really pleased, proud, and impressed with how we've done that. Our faculty and graduate instructors have just really stepped up and gone above and beyond to to do what they can to make these classes uh, really a a good quality and make sure students are gonna have a good experience the rest of the semester. Um, I think to some extent, we were in as good a position as anybody because we have quite a few online offerings. Anyway, many of our faculty already have some training. We do some training with our grad students to teach online already. Um, And in fact, we had just launched a fully online psychology degree, which may become more popular now. Um, So we were in a better position uh, than most. Uh, Most of our faculty sort of had some of the technical skills they needed to make uh, this transition. Um, And of course, the little bit of break there with spring break was good timing as well to give people a chance to, to ramp that up. Um, and I, I think probably for the vast majority of our students, things are going uh, quite well. Of course, the ones we really worry about are those who don't have good access to technology, don't have good access to reliable, fast internet. And we're constantly working to try to make sure that we can deliver uh, a good instructional um, opportunities for them as well. Uh, those are the ones we worry most about. Uh, we also know we've got a lot of students who are at home taking care of children and uh, other responsibilities. We know many of them are facing tremendous financial stress through loss of uh, their employment in this situation, and we're trying the best we can to uh, be sensitive to those and make sure that our uh, classes offer equitable uh, instruction. Is there anything you've learned teaching
0: online classes that you think would be helpful for people to know right now, people who are doing it for the first
1: time? Well, I think uh, one thing I would emphasize is that whatever we would talk about doing right now might not necessarily apply to online teaching in general, because right now we are in um, a sort of a crisis mode, making sure that we deliver the minimum in the best quality possible way. Uh, and so the, the best thing I would tell people about the current situation is to uh, be as flexible as possible with uh, especially the students on the other end, Um, uh, None of them asked for this. Uh, Their instructors didn't either. And um, many of them uh, would not choose online instruction because they know it doesn't work for them if they had a choice. And so trying to be as flexible as possible, really thinking through uh, not just how the ideal student might be able to navigate this class or be successful, but how might a student with all kinds of other challenges still be able to be successful in this class? And so that's why Uh, We really encourage things like doing things more asynchronously, things that students can access when they can, versus synchronous things that may have challenges for um, uh, students being able to access those, Um, delivering things that can easily be uh, accessed or used or completed on a phone, because that may be the main device that most students have, not assuming that every student has uh, a computer at home. Um, And that's one thing that's really different than our online classes, because in our online classes in a normal situation, uh, we feel more comfortable telling students, these are the requirements you're going to need to have in place to be successful. You may need to have a computer with reliable internet and quiet time that you can do this class. And in this current situation, it's not really fair to expect that of the students. We have to be a lot more uh, understanding of their various challenges. And it's not their fault that they're not better prepared to take an online class right now. It's just the situation we're in. Um, so, so that's one thing that I think is really different um, from online classes versus taking a whole university online in a crisis. And I mentioned earlier that you are a researcher. Is your research just ground to a halt right now? So uh, a lot of our research is done uh, online. Uh, So uh, some of my research actually is advantaged right now relative to uh, much of our research involves uh, university students and with all of our uh, in-lab face-to-face studies shut down. The online studies probably have a bit of an advantage right now as far as recruitment and participation in our studies. Uh, so uh, most of my work uh, is ongoing and uh, several uh, people in psychology, their work is ongoing and um, I can continue right now. I'd like to thank Thad for joining
0: us. You'll find his Tips for Coping with Coronavirus Challenges on cast.okstate.edu. And with that, as always, we will end this episode by asking...
1: How are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? So, uh, you know, one thing you probably know about me, Jacob, is I am an arts and sciences fan. It's my own background. I have an undergrad degree in biology and I'm a psychologist now. Um, And as I think about how arts and sciences are making a difference right now, I just think about if you're to watch the news right now or any news program, to me, it's almost an advertisement for the necessity of arts and sciences. If you watch what they're gonna talk about are the importance of science and critical thinking and problem solving, and that certainly is a huge piece of arts and sciences. Uh, we talk about things like what's really important in putting things in a historical context, and of course that's humanities uh, coming into play there. Uh, You can't watch a show today where they don't talk about arts and artists and how they are contributing to our uh, society, kind of pulling together and coping with this uh, situation and pointing uh, to beauty and and things. And that's super critical. And then, of course, the social sciences, you know, talking about how are we going to solve this problem together? Um, How are we going to communicate and communicate effectively? How do we tend to those relationships um, that are so important in our lives? Uh, I mean, I just think Everything going on right now is, uh, uh, points to the absolute necessity of arts and sciences for making a difference in the world.